This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Hey everybody, it's John Hall. Sitting across from me is Jacob McKean of Modern Times Beer in, I should say, San Diego, Los Angeles, Portland, and coming soon to a state and neighborhood by you. <laughs> yeah, probably not a new state, but potentially a neighborhood. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Modern Times and all of that uh, in just a minute. But first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on custom, innovative solutions that match brewing customers' immediate and future needs. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. And the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment, design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you would want and accept for, uh, expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. It is a beautiful spring afternoon here in New York City. The windows are open at the Blind Tiger Ale House, so you're going to hear some traffic in the background. But that's what happens when you record in the greatest city in the world, the most congested city, at least on the East Coast. Uh, I'm not going to even pretend that uh, our traffic can rival yours out in uh, L.A., San Diego, uh, and beyond these days. We, we but, take it to psychedelic levels. <laughs> uh, and you're on a vacation. You're not even here promoting your beers. and. That's and right. I somehow wrangled you to to come out, so thanks. Yeah, yeah I lived in New York for uh, for many years, and um, still, you know, consider it my second home. And I try to get out here as often as I possibly can because, you know, eighty percent of my friends still live here. Everyone I went to college with, and so on and so forth. And you went to college here. Yeah. Studying what? Uh, U.S. history. So original plan in life was to be a history professor. Yeah. Uh, that did not pan out. I decided that was going to be way too staid and quiet and isolating uh, an existence. You wanted the chaos? Um, well, <laughs> I may have gotten more than I bargained for there. Uh, it was more that after college, when I was kind of uh, wandering in the wilderness, figuring out what I wanted to do, I you know, caught the bug for craft beer, got very obsessive about uh, both you know, tracking down and consuming the beer itself, and then also making beer at home. And uh, it took up an increasingly large portion of my life until I finally gave in and uh, and started the thing. So when, when you say caught the bug, what mm-hmm. was the what was the beer? What was the brewery? Yeah. What was what was the the aha moment? Yeah, the moment uh, I remember very distinctly. It was at the Hop Leaf in Chicago, yeah, uh, and bar. it was a draft pour um, of triple caramelite, and uh, <laughs> was something you know obviously no longer would probably blow the doors off my life. But at the time, having you know been basically just out of college and uh, not having been a big beer enthusiast. Uh, it was a real wow moment. I didn't, I had no idea that beer could be, um, could be all that. And uh, I was fortunate, though. You know, having gone to school in New York, uh, at least I was drinking Brooklyn Lager, which sure. 
uh, compared to most college beer was a, a massive step up. So I got lucky there, but I didn't really, you know, I wasn't like a connoisseur. I didn't really understand why one was better than the other. And um, the hop leaf uh, kind of became my early education, especially in sours and Belgian stuff, which is what they specialize in. And, uh, and then also the great American craft breweries that were brewing in the Midwest at the time, you know, that was very eye-opening for me as well. So. And then you continued your journey out to the West Coast and yeah. you worked for Stone for a yeah. lot of years. Yeah, so, in, well, for two years at Stone, but in between those two things... You it know, felt was, like a long time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> There's a lot of alumni who are laughing along as well before they start crying. No, but, but all right, so two years there. Two years there, but before that I was a freelance writer um, and you know, worked in, on a bunch of different things. My interests range from travel to music to beer, etc. But I was a home brewer and I was increasingly obsessed with making beer at home. And then a bigger and bigger portion of my writing became about beer. And then eventually, you know, because of the insecurity of freelance writing and a variety of other factors, I just thought... You know, this is kind of a maybe not the best way to go about this. I'm going to look for a real job uh, with you know healthcare uh, in the industry, and so I applied for jobs at breweries all over the country. Ended up getting the job at Stone. Moved out to San Diego. I'm from LA originally, so a move to Southern California was kind of exciting for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, working at Stone was the best possible education I could have had in craft beer. There's really very few other places you can work that are a distributor, a retailer, and a wholesaler. Um, some of the brightest, uh, most knowledgeable people in the industry worked uh, there, and I was able to learn from them. And in my role doing marketing and business development, I really had to be in contact with everyone across the entire company. So it was a tremendous learning experience, and um, you know, now Stone is our Southern California distributor. So uh, also a key relationship. and. Um, you know, immensely proud of what they've accomplished in Southern California. They're, San Diego was not a, you know, considered a world-class beer city, uh, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And through their distributorship, they really helped build it into uh, into the city it is today. When you were home brewing, what were you tending towards? What were the what were the recipes that excited you? Did you start at the basics and sort of yeah. like make your way through BJCP and? I, I was less patient than that, so I did start with the basic stuff. Also, I, we picked keg delivery time right, to yeah, record perfect, this, which is fun. Right. Yeah, <laughs> not church bells, folks. Those are kegs being dropped on the sidewalk. It's a, it's a similar uh, yeah. uh, reverent they, sound. They mean the same thing. Yes, yeah. they do. <laughs> come in, come in. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I, I did start in the classic way with like the kits, you know, and just doing the, the most basic possible things. But I think I. I tend to be an impatient person in general, but then also, you know, I'm creatively uh, eccentric, and so I, I quickly got into doing weirder stuff, and so... Was that influenced uh, by moving to San Diego, where there was such a different beer culture that existed? No, I... I, I so I actually started homebrewing in New Orleans. There was, a member, there was a homebrew club there called the Crescent City Homebrewers, and I okay. learned from some really great folks who had been brewing for, you know, a long, long time. Uh, some of whom have gone on to start NOLA Brewing sure. um, and run the incredible sour program there. I actually learned all-grain brewing from uh, Derek Lintern, who now runs their sour brewing. What a great guy. Yeah. Amazing beer and, yeah. and great people. Um, and so, yeah, really New Orleans. Um, and then after that, Pittsburgh was where I got really deep into it. And I was, at that point, I was brewing every weekend. And, yeah, I got into, you know, I think originally after the kit thing, I... I got into trying to do clones of some of my favorite beers, so you know I'd 
try to brew a nugget nectar or a gumball head or something like that. And um, and then, you know, at that point, I just wasn't satisfied with just brewing someone else's beer. And so it got, you know, increasingly weird from there. When did you have the moment that you thought, okay, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring professionally and, yeah. you know, it was, you know, I was living in Pittsburgh at the time, and uh, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but if I had to guess, I was probably after, you know, like, the 25th rejection email for, like, some pitch I was sending to, like, a beer magazine, and I just thought to myself, you know, there's got to be a better way, uh, and I had kind of... For the record, I wasn't an editor when you were yeah, pitching, no, so well, I, I never not had the chance John. to... Yeah. <laughs> I never had the opportunity to turn you down. Yeah, John was not indirectly responsible for Modern Times. Uh, um, so, yeah, doing that, and I guess I had kind of, I thought about uh, running a brewery for a long time, but I just kept it at a distance. It just didn't seem realistic. It didn't seem possible. Something just clicked, and I thought, well, I'll just start writing a business plan. So I just started writing the business plan and I just kept going until I ran, you know, until I couldn't do it anymore, until I ran into technical stuff that I wasn't qualified to take on. I was like, okay, if I'm serious about finishing this thing and, and continuing to go on, I need to work at somebody else's brewery and really learn the industry. I'm, I'm totally amateur. Yeah. Um, so I need to learn this business from the inside out and then I can finish this plan and then move on to fundraising and all the rest. So that's the point at which I decided, okay, I'm going to start applying for, for jobs and take this thing seriously. And um, yeah, while I was at Stone, you know, I was thinking to myself, like, you know, this this seems like something that I could do. I have my own uh, spin on it. You know, Stone at that time, of course, Stone was 15 year old company, had a very established brand, a very established style of brewing, and all that. And so, you know, my job working there was really to to help promote what was our, what had already been established there and was already happening. And um, I wanted to do my own spin on it. I had my own vision for the beer and the aesthetics and the company and all that kind of thing. So, um, fortunately, yeah, I was able to. I walked away from my healthcare and my paycheck and all that two years in, and uh, fortunately, they were very supportive of me. So, I mean, what I find find interesting is, even though you came from LA, LA's home, um, you had brewing experience in Pittsburgh, which was still sort of an underdeveloped market. Yeah. Uh, New Orleans, which was certainly an underdeveloped market. Yes. <laughs> uh, you don't seem, you know, even New York uh, yeah. it, at that point was an underdeveloped market. Definitely. You know, if we're talking, you opened Modern Times five years ago. So, yeah. you know. Six in July. Right. So yeah. it's, um, so six years with a couple of years in planning for this. I yeah. mean, New York was a, was a desert at, right. at, at that point. Yeah. San Diego was not. Right. San Diego was. <laughs> Yeah. It was, it's where it was at. Right. Uh, you know, save maybe for Denver, uh, parts of the Bay Area. Right. Um, if you wanted the largest concentration of breweries, uh, right. San Diego was where was where you go. Yeah. Why jump into that fray? Why? Yeah. Well, two reasons. One, you know, as, as I said, I had all my connections there professionally, having worked at Stone. Yeah. You know, that's where I developed my my industry network. Um, and then this, the second reason was for me, you know, if. My feeling was that if I took what I was doing really seriously, I wanted to be surrounded by the best. And, um, you know, I think winemakers behave the same way a lot of the time, right? Like they uh, generally want to learn at least in, in the highly developed markets. And so, you know, I still very much subscribe to the idea that I'm not competing against other craft breweries. Um, and so being in an environment where there was tons of support, there were tons of great breweries whose knowledge I could tap into and people who I could rely on, you know, if I ever needed anything, um, that was very appealing to me. And so I wasn't intimidated by the idea that it was a developed market. 
also I was my goal was to make you know beer geek beer that's what we do and so that required me to be in a place with a lot of beer geeks you know so yeah. if I had taken the pioneer approach and tried to be you know a big fish in a small pond somewhere else um, I really would have had to been tasked with like developing beer geekdom from scratch which was a more daunting prospect to me um, yeah it's interesting that you talk about you know beer geek beer because there are some folks who strive for that, and then there's other folks who sort of fall into it by accident, right. and uh, and then suddenly you're faced with long lines on Saturday morning, and they're not quite sure how it happened, right. but they did something right, and then you know there's other folks who really want it but can never replicate it on on, on either level. Right. What is your definition of beer geek beer, <laughs> and then? Give me an example of, of, yeah. of, of one of those. Ooh, that's a tough question. I don't know that I've ever. You're the had one to who said it, man. You teed this yeah, up. I, know. I think I've, I've been coasting on an undefined uh, understanding of the term for a long time. Um, huh. I guess I would say it. It's beer that appeals to people with highly developed and experienced palates. So. Um, you know, I certainly remember being a non-beer geek, being introduced to craft beer, thinking it was amazing, but I did at that time try some things that I would consider be a beer geek beer, and it was way too much for me. Like, it was not an appealing thing to be challenged in some of the ways that, that beer geek beer challenges you. Um, whereas, you know, I think it's natural with anything that once you get deep into it, um, the entry-level stuff gets to be, a, you know, it's not necessarily boring, you still appreciate it for what it is, uh, but it no longer excites in the same way. So yeah. you need something that kind of pushes the boundaries. And so um, I would say a beer geek beer is one that, that challenges you um, in a way that uh, you have to have been in it for a while to really appreciate. So I came out of that subculture, and that's why we make the beer we make. Like I was a beer trader, I was the guy who was standing in line, you know, at Lost Abbey in the parking lot under the blazing sun. Uh, you know, doing these totally unpleasant, like yeah. inexplicable things to get uh, these rare beers, um, <laughs> and so for me, it was just a natural extension of that. That was the subculture I came out of. I've been, you know, a nerd posting on Beer Advocate for over a decade. Um, do you still? I do still. Okay. Yes, and that, I, you're actually, one of those brewery owners. I love engaging with the fans. It's honestly one of the most fun parts of the job. And you know, even though um, folks can be fickle sometimes, like well, yourself included. I mean, I've tangled yeah, with you online. Sure. Well, yeah. I think the the internet um, uh, is is the debate forum of the modern world. And so, yeah, I think it's natural that there's a lot of that kind of thing that goes on. Um, but yeah, I love you know I love that community. I love engaging with it. We have a, um, a bottle club, the League of Party Guards and Elegant People, uh, <laughs> and uh, they're you know our most hardcore fans. And um, I love engaging with them. I love interacting with them and answering their questions. It's the most fun part of my job by far. So um, I'm not put off by the fact that they're demanding. Uh, I like it. I'm I'm that guy too. So yeah, it works for me. All right, I want to follow that train of thought but uh, before I do that I just want to tell everybody that great beers are made from select ingredients with BSG you'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provides you with the assistance you need every step of the way let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft for more information visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. 
And this episode is also brought to you by craftbeer.com. It is a source for beer news, beer education, and beer culture. One of the things that I talk to when I talk to, to, to brewery owners, Jacob McCain of Modern Times Beer, uh, is them trying to bring as many people into the fold as possible. And so when you describe beer geek culture and you describe uh, discerning drinkers or people who you know, have already had their, you know, their epiphany, their first moment. Yeah. If I brought my brother-in-law in who knows nothing one about craft, would I be making the mistake on multiple levels of, you know, being mean to him in a place where he might not feel good? Would I be, you know, doing it wrong by you by bringing in a guy who, you know, wouldn't know, you know, Citra from Citronella candles, right. like you know, it, it, what, what? Yeah, yeah. The answer is no. You would not because um, Modern Times is unique in this way, in that like we're not in. Enti- we're a really a hybrid business, right? So there's there's the league and um, the theory, which is the tier above that, and that's one aspect of what we do, and it's the thing that I, I geek out on engaging with the most. But the large majority of what we do is not that stuff. It's um, sorry. It's uh, um, you know, it's beer that's that that is accessible to folks who um, you know shop at the grocery store for their beer, and we deliberately cultivate uh, a friendly, welcoming, open environment. And okay. you know, a big part of that too is also um, the aesthetics of modern times. Like we deliberately design our packages and our tasting rooms to be interesting in ways that have little to do with beer because we do want to bring people into the fold who aren't necessarily just geeks for the liquid. We want people who love great aesthetics and love interesting spaces and cool vibes and fun bartenders and people who are knowledgeable and and eager to educate them and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we very deliberately go out of our way to be the kind of place that brings new people into the craft beer fold um, and expands the demographics and, and, you know, keeps things... Um, By the way, do, do you want a beer? Uh, I'm okay. I'm still working on the one I have. Thank you, though. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, by the way, I should point out that everybody who's listening right now is, is probably cringing if they're in the car or on their their, uh, their headphones every time the, the kegs drop here. Uh, it is 50 times worse for us, <laughs> uh, as, as it were. Um, and that's true because you are in the grocery store. I mean, you're yeah. a Costco for God's sake. Like it's you know, uh, you yeah. guys did what fifty thousand barrels last year? Uh, more, more than that. Yeah. Okay. But, um, in I how mean, many states now? Uh, we're in seven states, and our goal is very much to not go too much beyond that. We're we're a West Coast distributed brand right now. We have just announced distribution to Colorado, which we've been doing kind of burst buys in for a while now. But why Colorado? Um, well, it's, you know, my affection for the state began in 2010, the first time I went to GABF yeah. in Denver, and I think a lot of people in beer have this experience. You get to Denver and you just have the time of your life, yeah. and, um, you know, you see what a great, it does, you know, GABF does such an amazing job of featuring the beer scene in Denver, even beyond the, the convention itself. There's so many events around town, so many great bars, and you just think, wow, this is a place I would love to sell my beer eventually. And, um, you know, for a long time that was aspirational. We just didn't have the production capacity to keep up with that. Um, and now we're in a place where we're able to. So we've already long developed a distributor relationship there. We have a relationship with retailers and fans and so on. So it's a pretty natural extension of this So point. we'll see you at Falling Rock. Is, uh, What's that? We'll see you at the Falling Rock. Yeah, yes. Well, we've done the Falling Rock event a few times already for GABF. 
Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll be there regularly. Certainly would, would be honored to be. Well, what you know, uh, Chris Black has been on uh, this show with uh, Jamie, and he's sort of bemoaning uh, Chris, not Jamie, uh, the brewery tap rooms that are opening up. Not necessarily breweries uh, yeah. where they're making the beer, but uh, satellite restaurants. And he's saying that that is hurting his business, and, and, and he, he has long uh, posts about that, and I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that to that episode. But from a business standpoint, you have opened up yeah. essentially beer bars that are... Well, we don't serve a lot of... We serve our beer for right. the most part. We, we do guest beers very rarely. I, and I didn't mean yeah. like bar bars, but like it is... These are tap rooms only. There's no brewing equipment yeah, although, where you're serving your beer. Right, although I'll point out that uh, as of right now, we only we have two of those locations, uh, whereas we have three locations with on-site brewing. Sure. So the majority are still, as of today, uh, I guess what you would call traditional brewery t- or brew pubs or brew whatever. Pubs, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that's definitely been a big part of our model. I mean, I think, you know, I can certainly understand uh, the critique. There's a proliferation of uh, tasting rooms in a way that I, I think is pretty clearly unsustainable. Like, not all of these are great breweries opening great spaces, you know, that are uh, that are going to last. Um, and so, yeah, there's this is a bit of a moment where, like, the brewing industry has discovered this new thing that they can do, which is to open duplicate tasting rooms. And like anything, you know, the market is going to expand before it contracts. And yeah. so right now, a lot of people are trying their hand at it. Um, and what, yeah, what do you, as a brewery owner, what do you see as the benefit of the, the spaces for you? Well, yeah. So this is, I guess, the other part of, of countering the argument um, is that, you know, what we've seen is that when we open a tasting room in an area... Um, it introduces a ton of new people to our beer. It's not just about servicing existing fans of the brewery. And what, what we've found is that, you know, which beers people order when they go into bars and restaurants are largely based on them ordering what they know they're going to like. So if they come into a Modern Times tasting room and they get a flight and they know they like Fortune Islands and then they see Fortune Islands on tap at the bar down the street, they're much more likely to order Fortune Islands than they were before. Which is what? What, what kind of beer is that? Uh, so we're now calling that a pale ale. Uh, but that was originally a hoppy wheat beer. Okay. Recipe hasn't changed at all, but uh, hoppy wheat was too confusing a concept for people, so we went with pale ale. Um, Unless you were in the Midwest, you'd play in the in, in the Midwest. Yeah, right? I, we don't distribute in the Midwest, right, so, yeah, <laughs> so it didn't so work gotta, out yeah. that way. Um, we tried for years to yeah. convince people that hoppy wheat was something they wanted, but uh, I had a conversation with Jeff Bagby from Bagby Beer not too mm-hmm. long ago, who was you know telling me that. Uh, you know the things that he calls you know, pale ales. You know people are like, you know, it's not. There's no hops in this. You know, or you know his IPAs is like, well, this is nice for a pale ale. Like, right, San Diego right. is a really tough market when it comes to hops. Yeah, the definitions get get pretty blurred to the point where it really does just become a marketing choice. Um, All right, I want to get back into your tasting rooms though. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Do styles matter? Uh, to me, no. I mean, I think that. I just like making and drinking great beer, and I, I think um, style definitions I think are, are interesting intellectually. Like I love the, the history of styles, how they evolved, but one of the things you learn from studying the history of styles is that they're very fluid. Yeah. Um, the idea that we have these like static styles that uh, have always been the way they are is just not accurate. And so even if you're into styles and into historical you know, evolution of styles, 
you, in order to be consistent, you have to be into the continued evolution of styles because they do always change throughout history for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not a style-oriented person. We make a lot of hybrids, hoppy wheat beer, hoppy amber, all kinds of weird stuff uh, that, that combines and, and extends styles in different directions. Um, and at the end of the day, all I care about is that it tastes good. That's the, that's the bottom line. All right, so if somebody has one of these beers at your brewery or your tasting room and then they see it at a bar down the street, that's where, yeah. that's where we were. Yeah, and so we have data that backs that up, right? That's not just like a feeling we have. You know, we opened our, taste, our first satellite tasting room in North Park, which is the neighborhood I live in in yeah. San Diego. It's 15 minutes from the brewery. Like, there's really no reason why you couldn't just go to the brewery if you really wanted to. Um, but after we opened, our wholesale distribution in North Park increased by a factor of like 10 because people in the neighborhood had come into a, a, our place, they'd heard the name, they tried the beer, they loved it, and then when they went into the neighboring bars and restaurants, um, they were much more likely to order it. So it was a win-win for everybody. The retailers in the area, we did have a couple who expressed some skepticism, and sure. within a year, they were all completely won over. Really? So, yeah. How so? I mean, they you know said the same thing we, we did, which is, you know, business is not hurting, and in fact, much many more people are ordering your beer, and they love that it's and part of the neighborhood. And they're still carrying your beer. Yeah, He's oh like, yeah, okay. absolutely. Our distribution is, we have way more points of distribution today than we did when we first opened the tasting room in North Park specifically. Okay. Um, it's been tremendous for acceptance with both retailers and consumers in the area, and we see that repeated everywhere we've done that. And you've seen, because that, I mean, that's sort of the interesting thing, right? Because there, if you have the data to back it up, like, there is a certain threshold in which people are willing to drive or take an Uber or whatever to, to, to get to you. Yeah. And, you know, is it 15 miles or 15 minutes? What did you 15 say? 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Like, it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but, right. like, it. I guess it can be in the minds of certain people. Sure. I mean, it's also about foot traffic, right? When most people are drinking, they don't. They would prefer to just walk from place sure. to place. And um, People are, walk in California? They do, in fact. Sorry, that was yeah, a, functional legs. That was an uh, East Coast... Uh, <laughs> a little bit of snobbery. Yeah, there. no, they're, yeah. Uh, you know, in uh, certain stretches, they are willing to walk. And okay. so the, our North Park spot is on a busy commercial stretch uh, with a bunch of other great businesses. And, yeah, people like to go from place to place. I think, you know, in my view, I think what's a far more likely explanation for why some of the great older um, beer bars are, are, face, are struggling is that they're facing more competition from other beer bars. I mean, when... Uh, for a long well, time. Well, other bars that now serve a variety of beers. I mean, I, I don't necessarily see a lot of places that open up that are Hop Leaf or Tiger right. or yeah. Toronado or any of the... Like, I see a lot, you know, right. but I can walk into an Applebee's and get, right. you know, local beer now. Totally. Um, and I think that's the difference, right, is that those places, the places you just mentioned, have tremendous depth of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, they have very deep relationships in the industry. They're able to get things that no one else is. And that matters a great deal to the diehard fan. Um, but to a lot of casual drinkers, there are now so many more options for where they can go to get a variety of craft beer. I mean, just in San Diego, it's impossible to keep track of the places that have 36 taps or more or whatever and are serving a lot of good beer. I mean, yeah, yeah it's not on the same level as, as the places that have been around for 15, 20 years that can get anything they want anytime. Um, but again, that matters a lot more to a small but dedicated audience than it does to a general population. So, you know, now in San Diego, you cannot open a bar or restaurant without having an extensive craft beer selection. And so the options for the consumer have just, you know, they can get beer in a lot of different places. And so it's, it's just a much more competitive environment than it was. I don't think, from my 
what, what I've seen in the industry, I don't think that brewery tasting rooms are an outsized piece of that competition. I think it's a, at best, if anything, a very small piece. I think the real competition is coming from other retailers who used to not care about craft beer and now do care. When you're putting tap lists together for your tasting rooms, for your breweries, uh, even for going out into the market, I, I'm, I'm really curious as to how much you think about diversity of portfolio. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've, I've walked into some breweries recently. I was a, a, over the weekend. I stopped in a brewery, and they had, uh, and I, 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 I kid you not, nine different versions uh, of a New England style IPA, uh, yeah. and something that they called a pilsner, <laughs> and. Uh, I, and I just like it was like all right like I'll I'll try something but like you know there's only so many hopping rates of citra right. mosaic or well strata cool like you know right. before I just start to get fatigued yeah. and I and when you have to when your goal with a tap room is to make money and to get customers to come yeah. for the first time and then come back again and again and again mm-hmm. how much do you think in the back office of diversity of taps and diversity of yeah. You know, recognizing that there's going to be a table of six and maybe right. people want six different beers. Um, we think or it, in a beer geek sense, like, do you right. not care? We think you'll drink what we make and you'll like it, <laughs> goddammit. Yeah. I think we, th- I would say we think about it a bit, but we, we don't uh, lean into that too hard because, you know, it takes uh, forever to sell through the sh- you know, like a Schwartz beer when we make it. So, yeah. Um, we do try to keep... Have you tried calling it a black lager? <laughs> yeah, I think we have. Actually. All right. I, I talked know. to Alex Noel about this at uh, Three Weavers, and, yeah. and she said, like, that yeah, we stopped, we stopped calling it a Schwartz beer, and we started calling it a black right. lager, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. that's the trick. I'll, yeah. I'll give it another shot. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we had, when we... I think when we venture into air, when we do things just for the sake of variety, that's when we end up with stuff that doesn't sell through. Yeah. When we kind of allow our interest to naturally take us into into weirder places, usually that works out better. Yeah. Um, there have been times I think where I've looked at our tab list and I've been like, "That's too many hazy IPAs. Like we need to work What's on that." What's the number? What was the number? I don't off the top of my head. I honestly can't remember. Right. But if was, you walked into a place now and mm-hmm. saw X number, what would what would that number be? Uh, Out of 12. Highly dependent on quality here. (laughs) Uh, I would happily take, uh, you know, four to five out of 12 if they were good quality. Yeah. Uh, If, yeah, I guess that's where I'll leave it. (laughs) All right, so so good quality is, this is sort of the intangible. Yeah. At this point, and you're an opinionated guy. You're somebody who you know drink. Well, you are, but uh, yeah. you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think we mm-hmm. need thoughtful people who have a megaphone in some cases. Um, you know, love it or hate it. Uh, you know, who who can put thoughtful things out there. But but quality beer is something that I've harped upon, and yeah. I know you have in the past. But like, where's the role in a brewery today to talk about quality? and try to apply it to the larger industry? That's a great question. It, it is a, you know, quality has, I think, it's it's basically subjective, right? Sure. Like how we define it is basically subjective. And I think for a long time, um, we talked about quality just in terms of things like off flavors. And, you know, when, when Modern Times opened five or six years ago, 
that was, a, you know, if you bought 10 beers off the shelf, probably half of them would have noticeable, easily identified off flavors. And If you were a geek. Yeah, yeah. if you knew what an off flavor was. Sure. Um, and at the time, I saw that as definitely the biggest threat to craft beer. That was like the subprime mortgage of craft beer was the fact that there was so much sloppily I made. That was terrible, terrible time in yeah. our history. But yeah. But I, you know, I really thought that could that if anything could stop our momentum, it was just bad beer on the shelf. Um, and I think that did, you know, cause uh, some difficulty for the industry. But now, you know, when we go out, I think the baseline level of quality has improved a lot. Uh, when I buy 10 random beers off the shelf, it's much... Do you much, still do that? I do, yeah. I think it's much less common to find, you know, that five out of those 10 would have, like, some obvious off flavor on them. Now it's more like one or two out of 10, and that's a big improvement. So on, on that front, I think we've made a tremendous progress in terms of quality. Where I see the biggest... Um, the biggest change is that, you know, you, you brought up styles earlier. I think we used to also define quality in terms of like trueness to style in a lot of different ways. And now I think what you're seeing is a much greater acceptance of the fact that quality in many ways is defined by the consumer, right? Yeah. So if fans say that it's quality and they give it a really high untapped score, then that means it's quality, you know? And I think there's a shift in power there from the brewer defining quality to the consumer defining quality. And I've always been pretty heavily on the side of the consumer uh, in that equation. Yeah, I don't but, but doesn't that like open up to more problems and doesn't that allow for brewers who in the past wouldn't have gotten the pass that they're getting today? Wouldn't have gotten the... Like, like, you know, if, if it's, you know, well, we think that this brewery is great even though our cans exploded or it's teeming with diacetyl or they don't know how to properly fill their cans and so the DO levels are, you know, all all, all screwed up. But hey, we think that they're great kind of thing. Yeah. I I don't know. Sometimes giving power to the masses, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, again, you're a student of history, so like, you know where this goes. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I see what you're saying. But but that has to, but when you're now going in day in and day out, and you're making a beer that maybe gets three stars on Untapped or Caps or whatever the hell. We would never get it. I'm kidding. (laughs) But because, like, you don't, because you're not in vogue at the moment. Right. You know, like, that's got to, like, that's got to worry you on some level. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that makes it hard to talk about this with people is that I have to. I don't think I've been called a fascist before, but, like, I could get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, right? It's like with a platform like Untapped, you have to accept that there's style bias and that the scores are going to uh, are going to vary from style to style and you're never going to get a Pilsner, no matter how immaculate it is, that's going to score at the same level as a hazy double IPA. And for a lot of people, that's where the conversation ends. They're like, well, if that's true, then I'll just ignore these results entirely. And to me, that doesn't make sense. We, we have yeah. to look at the fact that, you know, consumers do prefer different styles and that that, that is, you know, that is temporary in many cases. Their, their tastes are going to change over time, and that's fine. That doesn't make them uh, excessively fickle or it doesn't mean they have bad taste. It just means that preferences shift with time as they always have. So um, I think as long as you're willing to kind of be zen with the fact that, like, okay, I'm going to accept that as a category all my loggers are going to get lower scores than all my hazy IPAs and that may or may not reflect my personal understanding of quality. If you can just kind of make peace with that, I think that there's a lot of richness and a lot of value to that information and to, to kind of accepting 
uh, that that's the reality we live in. Do you see, <clears throat> so you have San Diego and, and the surrounding areas, you have LA yeah. and you have Portland, yep. uh, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Do you see differences oh, yeah. in consumer preference? Definitely, absolutely. And that's one of the most fascinating things about it is there aren't that many other breweries, I think, that distribute, that have like tasting rooms and right. such different Where you're places. getting the hard data. Yeah, like, you and get you're the credit card data off literally of the exact can, yeah. same beers to those places. And you're not able to just look at the like the untapped or the beer advocate scores, but also the sales data, uh, which is really I mean that's the ultimate that, voting in this exactly, situation, right? Yeah. Is like what people actually drink, regardless of what they say they're drinking. We know what they're actually drinking. Well, it's the Nielsen and, scores, right? It's right, everybody exactly. wants you to think that they're watching PBS NewsHour. Right. This is I'm dating myself right, like exactly. so tremendously much right now. <laughs> We're like, what, what's PBS? Yeah, what, also, what, what's Nielsen? Yeah. Well, I want to hear what the show is that they're actually watching in your imagination. Is sure. Like, you know, Alf. The, the Drew Carey. They're all yeah, watching Alf. Alf. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, yeah. what was the show about the uh, um, the butler who? Uh, oh, Mr. Belvedere. Mr. Belvedere, great show. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, who who wrote the theme song for that? Um, oh, uh, he just died. It's uh, was it Leon Helms? Maybe. I, yeah. you're, you're deeper into this than I am. <laughs> I'm reading the Times obituary section these days. Um, uh, all right, but but you have the data yeah, though. And exactly. you can so and and it's 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 different. It's definitely different. I mean Han San Diego is definitely hop centric in a way that other places are not. Um, we we definitely see that borne out in the data. Um, you know, another interesting data point is that we also have, we have not only the brewery in the North Park location, but we have um, a tasting room in Encinitas, which is a, a coastal community about 30 minutes north of the brewery. So that's like a beach town thing. We sell vastly more Pilsner there than we do in at the brewery. Sure. Um, and in Portland, you definitely see a different stylistic sort of preference. There's, I would say, a more diverse kind of, it's like a, it's a wider taste preference up there. There's more openness to styles like Cezanne's, which, you know, in San Diego just do not move really at all. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot, what a lot of this has to do with is the historical success of different brands in those markets. So if people have been drinking, a, you know, uh, an amber from Mac and Jack's for the last 15 years, they're much more likely to order an amber when they walk into your place. Yeah. Whereas in San Diego, there's no similar reference point really right like yeah. people aren't falling back on some fond memory they have of drinking back in jack's african amber you know so I, it, it's been really interesting to see how those stylistic preferences play out um yeah and it's going to continue to evolve i'm sure i don't think we're going to see a homogenous beer scene ever do you worry though of if you see that saison isn't taking off so there's no there's no reason for you to make a saison at that point. There's no reason for you to. Well, it, I, yeah, I mean that would be a very extreme version of it. But there still is an audience for those things, and so we still make them. It's just do we make them less frequently? We make them less frequently or less volume. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's just all about doing everything in proportion to demand, right? So personally, I love saisons. No, if sure, I were, of course. If I were drinking, you know, if I had to pick one beer for the rest of my life, kind of thing, it would be you know Orval. Um, but that's not what the consumer is telling us. And so as much as I would love to just make the kinds of beers that I personally like to drink, you know, all day, every day, instead we do still make them. We just make them at a lower volume, less frequent. Yeah. And someday I expect the pendulum to swing back the other way. And, do you? And, I mean, as a student yeah. of history, like literally yeah. a student of history, do you? Do right. you? Well, I, 
I, one thing that I've learned from history is that it's certainly impossible to predict something as specific as like Cezanne is going to oh, come shit. back and be the new hazy IPA. That's way too. Well, tell us uh, more, Nostradamus. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. way too granular a prediction uh, to ever to be plausible. You heard it here um, first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please don't hold me to that. Um, but I think we. I mean, and, Shores beer is the next big thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Southern California is going to go nuts for it. The Times but, Union is throwing it on the front page. You know, there was a time when it was considered, like, common sense that IPA would never become a mainstream style because sure. the average person is not going to drink bitter beer. I mean, yeah. you look at the macro beer advertising in the early 2000s, and it was there was a huge part of it that was, like, the never bitter beer. You know, bitterness is not a common flavor in our cuisine, you know? And, and so it's just, it would have been impossible to predict that swarms of, you know, average folks would love drinking very bitter, yeah. you know, alcoholic liquid. That and, just and, and swarms is absolutely right. I mean, this is a it's a tidal wave. Oh yeah, IPA yeah. is mainstream for yeah. sure. I mean, you you see so many people who only dabble in craft beer will still drink IPAs, yeah. and I think just from a sensory perspective, you never could have predicted that that would be the style that would take off, right? right. I and mean, so, my father, yeah. who would drink Heineken when I was growing up, now calls me when he and, uh, and, and my stepmother are out for lunch, and, and he'll say, uh, well, there's three IPAs on. Uh, right. Which is the one that I should have? Yes. I'm like, you know, trying to talk to my 67-year-old father about, uh, uh, you know, about IPAs. Right, yeah. Ask them which one they tapped most recently. That's a good answer. Um, and the same is true of sours, right? Like, I, I remember reading some trade publication when I was working at Stone, you know, it landed on my desk. I was like, sours are never going to be a mainstream thing. That's just way too niche. They're too weird. Like a Berliner, you know, no way is this ever going to happen. Meanwhile, Freelands are, you know, sour with uh, passion fruit and guava is like our fastest growing brand. And it's, you know, doing best in our in grocery and chain stores and stuff like that. It's by you know the most mainstream audience possible is loving sour beers, and um, you know so I couldn't tell you in ten years what that that thing will be, but I am confident that it will change and be different. That much I think is definitively true. So one of the things early on that you talked about was uh, being at Hop Leaf and drinking uh, triple caramel, and uh, you said it it, uh, it blew the doors off my life. Yep. <laughs> Running a beer geek brewery, mm-hmm. what, do you chase that? Do you chase mm. trying to create the beers that will give people that experience that you had at one point? Yes, but now the emphasis has shifted. So when I so? first started the company, we were formulating our core beers and our year-round beers, the ones that would go on to you know be on the shelves at grocery stores and and sold at a multi-pack at Costco and that kind of thing. And so when I was formulating those beers, I was very focused on, you know, I want the average person to try this and have it blow the doors off their life. And, you know, those beers were formulated to be at a price point where that was realistic and to be in a package where that was accessible and to be sold through sales channels that would allow that to actually happen. And, you know, now we change our core lineup very infrequently you know we may change one or two things a year tops which i guess actually is kind of a lot in beer you see people sure. run the same lineup for a decade but um the well, point not is so much that, anymore though yeah now yeah. obviously that's changing uh, uh, rapidly well, the bigger you get the harder it is to yeah one way or the other it's yeah. a, a desperate scramble to be relevant now that we didn't see before um and so yeah for me though i feel like that battle has kind of been fought you know like i feel like i made those beers and i i gave voice to that instinct and now when 
something that we made you know starts to become irrelevant and we euthanize it and we come up with a new thing I get into that again and I get excited about it but most of my focus right now is on the special releases the barrel aid stuff and that kind of thing so I do absolutely still try to blow the doors off people's lives but I'm focused more on the people like in the League of Party Goers and elegant people or in the Theory of Leisure Committee people who have you know deeply knowledgeable and experienced palates who have traded for beers for a long time and you know, I want that person to be blown away by the thing we just made. But and, that's got to uh, be harder. That's got to be harder than a random kid walking into Hopleaf and, you know, yeah. having a couple of drinks in him, I'm assuming, <laughs> and taking a chance on something and having right. the stars aligned in that perfect way. Right. When somebody walks in for one of your special boundary releases who have paid money to be in this club, who, you know, uh, is either thinking already about the secondary market or already thinking right. about... You know, uh, you know what they want to give your beer on right. Untapped or anything like that. That's got to be infinitely harder to find yeah. something that also isn't ground that has already been right. super well trodden. Or if you are going to, to yeah. you know, stamp down that ground some more, you have to go down a couple more inches with right. your footprint to really yeah. make an impact. Like, oh, coffee yeah. and vanilla, cool. Right. I've had that before. Um. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think that though, in the same way that like for a craft beer drinker, you start at kind of an entry level stuff and you work your way up to harder and weirder things. Yeah. As a craft brewery owner, I'm the same way. You know, like I'm in order to, to maintain my same level of excitement and enthusiasm, I need to reach for new and harder challenges. And so for me, you know, making a beer that beer geeks would, you know, might call the best beer of the year that's a challenge that is new for me and so that's something that I'm able to pursue with some of the same you know vigor and enthusiasm that I had when I started this thing six years ago when you're sitting down with your brewers though and you're trying to come up with recipes for these special releases yeah how long does that process how long can that process take for each individual beer sure well, that varies widely. I mean, it depends if we're trying to do something truly out there and new or if it's more of a variation on an existing style or something that we are just tweaking to try to make more successful. Yeah. You know, I, I think for us, a lot of what we do is tweaking. Like, we're a very uh, evolution-oriented operation. Like, we're very rarely satisfied with what we've done. And my feeling is that, you know, through accumula the accumulation of, like, 5% improvements, you can change something to be from fine to world-class. And yeah. so we spend a lot of time focusing on those little 5% tweaks. Um, but for something truly, completely new from scratch, yeah, that could be a lengthy discussion with a lot of ins and outs. And uh, we just released a, a series of beers called the MT Ultra Series um, that are the most, by far the most decadent and expensive beers we've ever made. And the process that went into making those and packaging them, they have hand screen printed labels that we did in house and yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, that was weeks and weeks and weeks of work by a lot of different people, um, really pouring all of their attention and energy into making this project incredibly special. So yeah, there is a, there is an arms race type thing sort of internally with myself going on. So it almost sounds like there's not always necessarily just the beer itself, just the liquid itself, but sort of the, you know, the other tangibles right. that, yeah. you know, and, and do consumers, have you found that customers relate to hand screen printed bottles? Like, is that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's one of the areas where I do like pushing people. You know, when we first started, design was not something that people cared about in craft beer. I mean, it was, it was almost like there was pride taken in shitty design. Like, yeah. I almost 
considered having deliberately bad design because I thought people might not take us seriously, you know, as beer if it looked too slick. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, you look at the shelf and it's just a sea of you sure. know, heavily graphic. If you look amateur, design. then you are amateur. Yeah. 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 So um, that's been a huge sea change, and I like to think that we played a pretty big role in that. And so, you know, now. I do think that there's people who appreciate that stuff instinctively, and there aren't necessarily a ton of breweries catering to that. Um, you know, I certainly no one else has ever done in-house screen-printed labels before with hand-applied, yada yada. I mean, this is the first time anybody's ever done what we're doing, and so far, you know, the acceptance has been great. But I do think it's pushing in a new direction, and but it's one that I'm happy to do. I mean, I think it is a full sensory experience, and yeah, five or six years ago, I think. I'm trying to remember exactly the details of this, but I think I remember like Firestone Walker put uh, like Parabola in a box or something, and people were like, this box is frivolous, like they should have just charged two bucks less for the beer or whatever. Yeah. And now you, you know, I can't speak specifically to the boxes that Firestone Walker uses, but like you don't really hear like, oh, this nice design is frivolous, you know, like that's not <laughs> right. no, really a thing people believe anymore. And I think that that's, that's a positive thing overall. Like, I think beer should be beautiful. The packaging should be beautiful. It should respect the liquid inside. It should be appealing to all sorts of different people. And we have this amazing platform to create great and interesting artwork and, and present it to the, make it accessible to the general public, so we should. As we start to wrap up, I'm going to ask you in just a minute what your hope for beer is. But first, I want to thank all of the sponsors of this episode. G&D Chiller is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you would want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. And you can bring the world to your brew house with select ingredients from BSG. And finally, craftbeer.com's mission is to tell the stories behind America's small and independent breweries, uh, of which you are one, Jacob McKinney, of modern yeah. times, a small... Uh, ish and independent <laughs> brewery, yep. uh, still uh, employee owned. At yeah, this partially point. employee owned. Yeah, um, yeah, that's been one of the you know my proudest professional achievement is within three and a half years of starting the business, we became thirty percent employee owned, which uh, was a massive, massive undertaking, but um, really puts into practice the the value system that I've applied to running the brewery from the beginning. So, just I'm very, very proud that our ownership reflects that value. Is there a hope that you have for beer? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm an unabashed cheerleader for the continued growth of the segment. I would love to see craft beer get to 50% volume. You know, I don't see why not. I think it's... it's We're recording this in 2019, where five, six, seven years ago, the BA, the Brewers Association, said 20% by 20 which, was that it? Yeah. It was 10% by... No, was it was it? always 20 by 20. It was the alliteration right. that, uh, yeah. that that hit. Shows how uh, much tension We're, we're <laughs> just about at 13. Right. Uh, not yeah. going to hit it. Right. Um, you're saying 50%? I mean, I'm thinking over the very long term, right? I mean, we're, how, we're talking like... How long term? Well, it depends. I mean, it, you know, for the last... Um, for many years, we were seeing double-digit growth, right? Like 13 15%. And now we're down to like 5%, yeah. which is, I think, a sign of a maturing uh, market. And I think it's a healthy thing overall. We're still outgrowing the economy, which uh, I think really says something. Um, and But, yeah, I think we'll keep chipping away forever, basically. I mean, I, I don't think craft beer is going anywhere. You know, beer has deep roots in, in American life, going back to the wave of German immigration in the 1850s. 
Uh, it's been here a long time. It's part of our rituals. It's part of our culture. It's part of our food history. And I think there's, I can't see any reason why people wouldn't continue to want better beer. There's going to, of course, be challenges along the way related to raw ingredient sourcing, pricing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the industry has proven itself to be very nimble, and the demand for beer, I don't think, is going to go anywhere. Um, you know, there'll be ups and downs. Right now, macro is contracting like 1% or 2% or whatever sure. it is. And, you know, there's going to be hills and valleys. But um, I'd like to see, you know, I don't think there's really any need for bad beer. So I'd like to see it go away. If you want to read more about Jacob and his brewery, you can go to our brewingindustryguide.com website where you can read a profile that, thank you so much, uh, a profile that I did on uh, Modern Times and Jacob a couple of months back. Uh, you can also, I guess, go and visit any number of your sure, your yeah. places. You yeah, can't do more than one at a time. But, right. uh, yeah. uh, although we do have one uh, league member who has visited all of them in a day, uh, which was uh, we gave him a sash and, and a ceremonial knighting ceremony. Wow. Um, but yeah, if you're in uh, San Diego or Encinitas or Los Angeles or Portland or uh, within Costco. a couple of weeks Santa yeah. Barbara or within a couple of months Oakland, um, please well, stop by. You guys by. are going into beer. Oakland too. Yep. Wow, the Bay Area. Yeah, that'll be our first Northern California location, so All right. excited for that. Um, yeah, stop in, come have a beer. All right, you got to go to uh, Sacramento next, and then you can just start doing uh, Dre and Tupac's California Love. You can just like, <laughs> open up in every city that they name. Oh, I had not thought of that as a theme, but I like it. But, yeah. I support it strongly. <laughs> All right, I'll expect my royalty check. Uh, yeah, yeah, listeners, if you have questions for me, uh, guests you'd like to hear, or topics you'd like to address, you can reach out to me at John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L at beerandbrewing.com you can join the conversation on twitter at john underscore hall and certainly please go to beerandbrewing.com where you can subscribe to the magazine you can read all about how to be a better home brewer read about what the, the pros are doing and find out what's happening in this craft beer industry right now Thanks so much, Jacob McKean, Modern Times, for taking time out of your vacation to sit here. Uh, thanks to the Tiger. Thanks for the keg delivery guys uh, who were so gentle and so, so very, very nice uh, for the earlier part of this interview. And if you've made it all the way through, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And until then, cheers. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.